0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. I'm sure we are. Hello, welcome. This is David Esau and this is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of a writer. Indeed, Holly George Warren, who's just brought a book out titled Janice, Her Life and Music. This is uh, published on Simon & Schuster Books. It's in hardback. It's already been praised as a classic from 2019, and I'm sure it's going to run and run, especially when the paperback probably comes out very soon. But anyway, this is the interview, um, and this is after a few minutes chatting. The uh, point where I mentioned about the, um, yes, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and then Janis Joplin all dying at the age of 27, that somehow symbolised or marked the end of the 60s. And this was Holly's reply. Holly, it's all over to you.
1: Yeah, and don't forget your own Brian Jones as well. I think he's the one that started it off. I yes. In 27, the summer of 69, so...
0: Yes, it was, it was unfortunate. A lot happened in a very short time and I spoke to a lot of people Yeah, that's
1: from, crazy, isn't
0: it? It is very crazy because I spoke to Barry Miles who did a lot in this sort of London, oh, yeah. this London scene and I did sort of ask him what happened towards the end of that period and he said actually we were just all really tired and wanted to just go to sleep really for a while, which was kind of, you know, because I often wonder why people who were so on the scene for a period of time suddenly just stop and, and now I realise why because often you get a bit disillusioned and tired so um yeah
1: i mean when you look at janice's schedule it was insane i mean she i i think it really led to her heroin use because she was touring nonstop with big brother left the band and then literally within two weeks was you know rehearsing with a new band playing a gig and then started up touring with them and it was kind of a a new aggregation a large band you know she was the band leader for the first time there was so much pressure on her and it was still that 60s mentality you know the pop hits mentality of you got to follow up the hit, you got to do another hit you got to do another hit and and they really you know, it was still in the UK and the US, the business saw these people as just being these kind of flash in the pans that would only be... Uh, doing successfully, you know, recording and putting out records for about maybe two or three years, and that was it. Yes, you know?
0: I know. The the tour and schedule of those people was just extraordinary. And I guess, because it was a bit like, I don't know if you saw that, there was a the one on the Rolling Stones a few years ago, which I think was Martin Scorsese, and there, there was a very young Mick Jagger being interviewed in about 63, 64, and being asked how long it would last, and he sort of looked up you know, slightly upwards in the sky to ponder the answer and said, well, probably another, I don't know, two years. And, you know, we all laughed in the auditorium realising that 50 years later Mick and the boys are still rocking. So it is kind of interesting that when Janice was obviously part of that kind of scene that was happening, no one thought it was going to probably become such an iconic movement that that sort of was the blueprint for most of the music that's happened ever since.
1: Right. I know what you're saying. Definitely.
0: Yes. So look, from the book, which is amazingly researched, I mean, you've got so much material in there. It, it is quite boggling. And obviously, and it, and it was her kind of early years, which is also quite boggling. To try and relate that person to the person that she becomes in such a short period of time. So is right. it possible to give us a little bit, bit of a background to Janice and her sort of family upbringing and then some of her um, horrendous experiences at school, which, again, what I've read was just horrible.
1: Yeah, and I think what made, well, I will start that by saying that her early childhood, I think, was, you know, quite pleasant, quite happy, and she had a lot of encouragement from her parents to pursue creative endeavors, to think for herself, to be an avid reader, and of course, uh, reading is knowledge, etc. But what happened was, um, when she did choose her own path later on in her teenage years, when she began to rebel against the kind of traditional post-World War II, uh, American dream kind of idea, that did not go over so well with her parents, but also particularly with her very conservative classmates at school. So I think what made it even worse for her was the fact that she had been well-loved and well-liked up to a point. But then when she turned her back on their kind of morals and values they turned viciously against her. And basically in a small town like that, that kind of um, treatment can really reverberate throughout the town, you know, the whole uh, small town talk, gossip kind of idea. And that made things really, really difficult for her. But luckily, she did have a small group of friends who were a year older who were into reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road, who had also discovered Odetta and Lead Belly. So she got to hang out with these guys. They eventually even took her along kind of like as a mascot, Across the river to Louisiana, where things were a lot looser, where you could go and hang out at these roadhouses and drink beer underage and listen to live bands. And she got to discover that incredible, um, just you know, it was life-changing for her to discover that kind of experience of live music, drinking, hanging out, dancing. It, it totally opened up her eyes, that along with the blues music. And on the road, those were the big three things that were a game changer for Janice and took her further afield, further apart from this kind of Rah rah cheerleader football game kind of lifestyle of her high school.
0: Yes, and America must have been a very strange period during there because you, you know, as you mentioned, the Jack Kerouac Beats on the Road, which was so influential for those artists at that particular time. Obviously, some people didn't pick it up. You know, there's certain pop bands from that period who were very cheesy and smiley, and I know there was quite a few from the UK who just didn't want to go into that, that counterculture. And then there's obviously other people who really bought into it and really wanted to slightly live the the world of Dean Moriarty and, and everybody else getting in the car. And, and at the same time, and what was always kind of boggling was there was still so much segregation as, as happening yes, as well. And, and so that must have been, especially from somebody from Texas, must have been quite difficult to balance those two things together.
1: Yeah, in Texas and all over the South segregation, even after a landmark decision by the Supreme Court that the schools would be integrated, uh, these places did not, still did not integrate their schools. And the racism was just horrible. The Ku Klux Klan was very active in her area of Texas. There were cross burnings. Um, African-Americans lived in practically a little shanty town Uh, Section of Port Arthur, Texas, where Janice grew up with, you know, substandard housing, um, you know, substandard school. They all went to uh, one school. And Janice was appalled by that. She stood up in class as, you know, a young 14 year old girl and said that she thought um, kids should all go to school together and, that integration was the way to go. And those beliefs really also um, turned her into a pariah. Uh, they just started making fun of her, yelling at her, um, ignoring her, etc. And then the same thing when she was hanging out, going out to the clubs, they started you know, saying that she was a slut. They were slut-shaming her and that kind of thing as well.
0: Yes, which is horrendous. And, and then there was that horrendous you know, the, the incident that happened at college where the, the, they put the ugliest, was it the ugliest um, man? Right. And, and yeah. obviously, you know, within a group of men, that's kind of quite amusing. But then they put her up, which must have just crushed her.
1: Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's kind of like the story of her life, because she would be embraced and beloved, and then she would continue to do things her way, march to a different drummer, and then people would turn against her and ostracize her in a very vicious way. And that happened in Austin, Texas. She... First began performing in public there with a little group called the Waller Creek Boys. People were just bowled over by her voice. This was a large university and the capital of, of Texas. And even though it, too, was uh, very backwards in a lot of ways, it was a little bit more progressive than most places in Texas in the 19, late 50s, early 60s. Janice was in school there in 19... 19- 62. And she, again, people flocked to see her play, gave her tons of positive feedback, but she was also, um, sexually adventurous. She was bisexual. She did not try to hide it. She had boyfriends, girlfriends, and again, these jocks and these fraternity guys who kind of ruled the campus didn't like that about her. Didn't like the beatniks that she hung out with. So a lot of it, I think, was a way to you know make a big dig at her lifestyle choices again. And yes, they put her face on these posters as a candidate for their ugly man, ugliest man on campus contest, which was an annual thing that they did. And usually, the you know the linebacker from the football team would win. But that was such a brutal thing to do. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And texas and she then hitchhiked to san francisco just the week of her 20th birthday in 1963 to find the freedom to really be the person that she wanted to be in yes. san francisco
0: and obviously that must have been the, one of the biggest kind of uh cultural changes that anyone could have imagined because obviously it was all going on in the west on the west coast and and she met the amazing chet helms as well who, yeah who,
1: and I mean, who was, yeah and also yeah.
0: the people from the, you know, you know the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane were all starting to bubble under. So there must have been a lot of people sort of gravitating a bit like somewhere like Glastonbury or London, certain yeah. places where all the sort of alternative types and freaks were sort of starting to, you know.
1: Yeah, and this was pre-Hippie. This was 1960. She was there the first time from 63 to 1965, pursuing a career as a blues singer. Uh, she was already writing songs. A lot of people don't realise that she had a very, Um, strong following even in this early period of 1963 in the North Beach area. um, Other like older musicians, established jazz band leaders heard her sing, were very impressed. She did some of her first recordings at this time. But sadly, yet again, there was no real infrastructure for her to sustain the kind of lifestyle that she was leading. You know, she was playing in uh, what we called basket houses, you know, folk clubs where they pass the hat. For just a few dollars a night. She didn't really have a place to live. She was sleeping on floors and she was in a, she had a little Vespa. She had a Vespa accident trying to play a gig out in Berkeley. But she was starting to meet people on this little early bluegrass kind of blues scene, like Yorma Kalkinen, later a founding member of Jefferson Airplane. She got to meet Jerry Garcia. Uh, David Nelson, who would later start New Writers of the Purple Sage, and they were all just completely knocked out by her voice. After about three years of this, she ended up having to go back home to Texas because she had developed an addiction to methamphetamine, which was very prevalent on the scene at that time. And it took her about another year recuperating. She went back to college. She actually even tried to be, you know, the all-American college girl but again, as hard as she tried and she was a good student, she still was not accepted by her fellow college co-eds and classmates. She was just considered to be too weird and she was miserable. And she also had to do music. There was no way she could stop doing music so she started singing again writing songs she even did a little recording session in beaumont texas before again chet helms her buddy who she traveled hitchhiked with in 63 to san francisco he had been part of the mover shakers of the scene that we all know of the counterculture the grateful dead he'd begun managing this band called um, big brother and the holding company who uh, wanted to be like Jefferson Airplane and have a female singer. So Chet Helms sent word to Janice, come out to San Francisco. So she went there again in 1966, um, telling her family she was just going to Austin, Texas for the weekend, but uh, actually going back out to San Francisco and that's where she found her tribe and really, really blossomed, was beloved and became really the, the queen of that scene.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. And that, I mean, that was like 66 that developed and obviously no one knew what was going to happen next. But then 67 was the summer, well, the, the sort of summer of love. But it started in January with the, um, there was a gathering of the tribes, were not there, in San yeah, Francisco, yeah. the Golden now- Gate.
1: Yeah, San Francisco was really where, I mean, I think personally, 66 was the true summer of love. By 67, it had become more of a media kind of thing. But 67, about one year after Janice had moved there and joined Big Brother, was when she really broke through in the U.S. and the U.K. at the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 67, which got lots of attention. A lot of press people were there. Derek Taylor, of course, the beloved... Pressman to the Beatles was uh, in charge of publicity and had invited everybody all over U.S. and the U.K. that was writing about music to cover this and Everyone went nuts over Janice, and she made all the headlines. And that was really the breakthrough for her and for Big Brother and the Holding Company.
0: Yes, and for people like me, that was probably the first time I ever saw her because I'm in my, you know, to confess, I'm in my mid-fifties. So I was at that generation who, whenever there was some some late-night, you know, concert like Woodstock or Monterey, you'd watch it, you know, and you couldn't even record it. And was kind of blown away with the Janice Joplin experience. And her voice was the thing that came over so much. So when you were researching this when did she discover and find that she had this incredible gift I mean it's quite a voice
1: well it's interesting because her mother was a very good singer and actually started teaching Janice singing and how to play the piano when Jan- Janice was only three or four years old so for and then sadly her mother lost her voice after having surgery on her thyroid um, and th- the her vocal cords were destroyed by that surgery or or injured so she could no longer sing. And Janice kind of just took her beautiful soprano voice for granted as a girl growing up. This was to her just whatever, you know, who what's the big deal? This is what I do. I sing in the church choir, I sing in the glee club, etc. But when she was about 15 or 16, she discovered these blues records. And she heard Bessie Smith and Lead Belly and Odetta. And she heard voices used in a very different way. Because you have to remember that at this period, even though there was some great rock and roll on the radio, there was Little Richard, there was um, Buddy Holly and uh, Chuck Berry, there really weren't any female rock and rollers on the radio. So she didn't understand how you didn't have to sound like this pretty little kind of Doris Day type to, you know, sing. You could have this really emotive, you know, edgy kind of voice. And when she started trying to sing in that way as a teenager and literally not in public, just singing along to records, that's when she discovered that she could tap into some, you know, her own inner angst and emotional um, parts of her with her voice and sing in a way that was meaningful and that had a lot of depth and feeling to it which was quite different from singing you know a choir song in the church you know for her
0: yes because we forget don't we we forget that there was just apart from her and Grace Slick I mean up to then it would be people like Teresa Brewer or k Starr or sort of that that kind of world isn't it is it um who was in the Elvis films Margaret Oh, God, her name. But she was kind of famous for her dancing as well as other yeah. things.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Margaret.
0: Yes, that's it. And she was well, also. You know,
1: it's it's interesting, too, I have to tell you, David, is that. You know, she did gravitate to some female vocals that she found, which were more in the country kind of rockabilly, uh, hillbilly boogie genre. So even as early as 1962, she did sing Rose Maddox songs and Rose Maddox had this raucous kind of voice that Janice you know, liked and I I don't have proof but I'm pretty sure that she discovered this song called um, Silver Threads and Golden Needles a country song on a Wanda Jackson record so I posit that she probably heard even though Wanda Jackson was not that well known she had this amazing raucous voice that uh, got some airplay with Let's Have a Party around 1959 1960 so I think Janice could have heard that but most of her influences were African-American singers and songwriters.
0: Yes, and <clears throat> having sort of done a lot of interviews with bands, there is a sort of a five-year narrative most most have, where they get together, they spend about 12, 18 months, they create a sound, then they get that single bit of airplay from various DJs, you know, and then that first album, things are generally going well, then when the second album, a bit tricky, and from, for anybody in the UK, whenever they tour America, they often, this is the bit of the interview where they say, then we came back and we split up because we just couldn't cope because the american thing is it seems to destroy most kind of british bands who have interviewed anyway so so the 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 big brother and the holding company they didn't they they lasted just under that five year narrative didn't they they didn't quite um yes her sort of well-
1: They did have a little bit of a history because they had already started as early as 1965. So they had had developed this kind of what they called freak rock, which was, in fact, uh, one of the guitarists, James Gurley, used to say that he wanted his guitar to sound kind of like uh, John Coltrane's horn, you know, and it was very improvisational and, you know, pretty psychedelic. It, It was rooted in some blues, too. They knew some of the same blues songs that Janice had heard in her you know research into blues recordings so they did change their sound and it did evolve in order to best complement janice's amazing vocals and they had a bit of a following before janice joined the band but once she did join of course the following really grew and I think to be honest I think Janice Joplin was a restless soul artistically she could sing anything and she even if you know some people have criticized big brother and the holding company i think they were a perfect vehicle for her to you know segue from being an acoustic blues singer with acoustic guitar to singing with this you know loud two guitar bass and drum attack that they had because she had to completely reinvent herself as a singer in 66 when she joined the band. She had never done anything like that. Yes. And so she did that for a while with them and and of course, you know, again they had some versatility. They did in fact summertime, an incredible version of summertime that they did. And of course, they discovered Ball and Chain which became their tour de force. They saw Big Mama Thornton sing that song who wrote it. Um, at a little club in San Francisco, she had not even recorded it at that point. And so they, what they used to say, they big brotherized it. So, So they did a lot of stuff with that sound, with some diversity. But Janice fell in love with Otis Redding. And with the sound coming out of stacks and and Memphis, you know, music and Muscle Shoals, Aretha Franklin's first album, you know, on Atlantic came out. She loved it, so she really wanted to try doing kind of more of a soul music sound with a horn section, with keyboards, like they were doing in Memphis, and that was not uh, in you know Big Brother's wheelhouse. So, I think between that, her, you know, artistic. Um, yearning to try something else. And also, yes, as we said before, taking a toll was all that constant touring, you know, and sometimes just like some of the bands that came over from the UK to the US, like the Zombies and so many other great bands, just the toll it takes on the bands, all the touring. And some of the complicated inter-band act, you know, inter-band member actions that start going down, et cetera, it it can really break up a band. But Big Brother did actually continue going even after Janice left the band.
0: Yes, quite. Because that is always the other point is that um, normally when... A band or an artist has that sort of, that moment where the chapter changes, you know, a few people like David Bowie managed to sort of write another chapter, but mostly it's like, actually, I've just had enough and felt, you know, burnt out and probably didn't earn that much money. But she went on to form a new band, the Cosmic Blues Band, which is pretty incredible, the amount of stress that she then must have been under because of the public exposure and everybody needing to sort of know everything that was happening, which is kind of quite an invasion of privacy, plus being sort of on national telly, singing with people like Tom Jones and all that kind of stuff. So how did, you know, did you sort of feel that she was kind of, it was kind of inevitable that her drug addiction was going to get worse at that point?
1: Yeah, David, it's, it's, I mean, again, similar to what happened to her in her hometown, what happened to her in Austin when, you know, they voted her ugliest on a campus, her beloved community, the fans that worshipped her in San Francisco, even a lot of the critics, uh, male critics, I might add, no offense, um, they savagely turned against her when she had the audacity to leave this all-boy band and strike out on her own as a solo performer and put together her own band. She got attacked viciously um, in the press, in the U.S., and by you know her original uh, critics who had loved her. Same thing with the fans. Uh, the first time she played San Francisco with her new band – um, they, The audience didn't even give her an encore. That had never happened to her before. So that was really, really painful for her. Also, she had to immediately hit the road with this new band and kind of try to whip them in the sh- into shape. Big Brother and the Holding Company had been a democracy. In fact, when Janice joined, she only sang lead on four or five songs. Everybody took a turn singing lead. They all contributed material. So this was a whole new thing for her. This was, Everything was on her shoulders. And these guys, some of them, you know, were, had the vibe, the San Francisco vibe, but most of them were more like hired hands, you know, sidemen. And some of them didn't like being told what to do by a woman, you know.
0: Yes,
1: absolutely. So, so she had a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and she wrote about this in letters and just reading these letters and the way she described this pressure and the stress was heartbreaking to me how much was on her shoulders and she was just pushed out immediately to start you know going out there on the road doing gigs because again it was this whole idea of like you got to follow up the hit you got to follow up the hit and cheap thrills had been very successful and piece of my heart had been a hit song on the radio so she had a lot of stress Now, heroin had already become part of her life. It had already been, it was just like people didn't realize that methamphetamine was everywhere in the mid-60s. People didn't realize that heroin was probably used as much as LSD, which was the drug that everybody thinks about when it comes to the whole San Francisco scene. But as we know from, you know, many musicians um, in San Francisco, they started dabbling in heroin. Same thing was happening in London with Eric Clapton, etc., And even, you know, in the South, members of the Almond Brothers. I mean, it was horribly prevalent. And a drug that, of course, the heroes of Janice and her band had, you know, used. Uh, you know, Billie Holiday was the big idol of Janice's. So they had this, you know, horrible false impression of like, oh, you know, this is a drug that the best musicians use. But then also for Janice... This was a way for her to kind of numb herself against all the criticism, against those pressures and stresses. And horribly, as we well know, it's a very addictive drug. So even if you just kind of dabble in it, if you do it long enough, you're going to get strung out. And that's exactly what happened to Janice over the course of
0: 1969. Yes, horrible. I always remember, I loved, you know, Motorhead and Lemmy, and he took lots of drugs, but he hated heroin. He just hated it. Every time he ever had an interview about drugs, he just, you know, just like, I wouldn't, wouldn't let anybody near me who's on that stuff. I think it's because he said he had over about 200 people die because of it. So um, it was one of those ones. But that is another matter. But the interesting thing, and you mentioned letters, she wrote a lot of letters including all these ones to her slightly unfortunate but not unfortunate but you know not the nicest boyfriend in the world but, yeah. but reading them how did that feel because obviously you know like nowadays if you were going to research somebody you'd see lots of social media but even that would be quite hard but being a writer and an author like yourself you know to read the kind of raw material of this person that you're writing about it and want to research must be an amazing insight for you you know you must almost come out in sort of like I don't know, some sort of stunned moment reading these kind of words that she had written, you know, over 50 years ago.
1: Yeah, she was an amazing letter writer. And for her, the craft of writing letters um, served many purposes. And it was almost like journaling in a way. She was very introspective, uh, self-analytical, descriptive, funny, articulate, you know, You got to see so many facets of her personality that did not come across as much, say, later on when she gave interviews. I mean, she became this incredible interview subject. Journalists loved her because she was the queen of the soundbite. She really knew how to work it, you know. And same thing with her image that she created, or her persona that she created to really sell herself as, you know, this rock star, which you've got to do. But you really I felt that I got to know the real Janice. And thank goodness that um, there was no Internet back then, because she in a period of about three months, she wrote almost 80 letters to this horrible uh, scoundrel who had proposed marriage but was a real con man, hustler. And um, that was that period in 1965 when she'd returned to Texas after living, you know, kind of out, you know, on on the go, on the road for like three years. And that was just such a treasure trove for me as her biographer because I really did feel. Like I could get her and not only her, but her family, her life, you know, what it was like for her. Just it it was incredible. It, It made me feel so close to her. And then once she did move back to San Francisco, thank goodness she had a very guilty conscience because she started writing her parents in 66 very heartfelt, lengthy letters telling them everything that was going on. Of course, she left out a few, <laughs> a few things here and there, but um, she did give a lot, again, another, you know, very great, insightful way to understand her. And then when she started touring, she would write letters to her best friend who kind of was holding down the fort back in San Francisco, her friend, Linda, who designed a lot of her costumes, etc. So... So I got to see the different sides of her and the way she thought um, through these letters that were just amazing, and they really helped me to tell the story too. I could help, I could quote from her letters. Thank goodness, um, the family, the estate, her siblings are fortunately still alive and. They gave me permission to quote from these letters um, as needed, so it, I think it really helped to enrich the text of the book, to and then enrich the narrative to have Janice's voice come through from these letters.
0: Yes, well, God, that was amazing. I mean, I can't believe how how much archive you you managed to sort of track down and find, which is for a writer is it, it just must have it must have been incredibly exciting, you know, to sort of keep going. Oh my God, I find another letter and just read in another one. You must have almost being transported back as if, you know, she was almost not re- writing to you, but just having that, oh my God, what happened next? Kind of. Yeah, point.
1: exactly, yeah. Well, her uh, parents, her family had saved all the letters that she wrote home, even little postcards and stuff, which were just really fun to read. And then the guy, the cad, who's no longer here, he's passed away, but over the, he had saved all of his letters too, thank goodness, from 1965, because, you know, she wasn't famous then or anything. But, you know, maybe I guess he was enough of a hustler to know he might have a good thing on his hands. Who I mean, she had, like I said, when he met her, she had had quite a bit of success locally in San Francisco playing the coffeehouse circuit as a blues singer. But, you know, she was gradually becoming a meth addict. So but still, he did have the foresight to save these letters and then, over the years, he had sold them off, so I was able to find a lot of the letters um, that had been collected and purchased over the years by rare manuscript and letter you know uh, letter collectors um, who lent me copies of them, you know auction houses and things like that
0: yes, and then obviously, as the decade sort of came to an end to you know there was there was obviously woodstock and then you know obviously it's kind of interesting because. Because there's been a lot of mention about Woodstock and I know you've done a book with Michael Lang, haven't you, as well? Right, yeah. Which was, which was also fascinating. And it's one of those kind of things that are is still quite boggled and because there was a lot of talk about it this year because of various, yeah, the anniversary and the right. fact that it was so close to being such a inc- catastrophic disaster. But she was there as well as the Monterey. So there, there was a really interesting sort of difference between those two events because if it wasn't for, for Woodstock, if it wasn't for that amazing film and sort of almost like good PR it would have almost been sort of written as like the worst disaster of all time almost making right. you know because I don't know I, you you must have sort of done so much research on that but but that sort of that period and then sort of the Rolling Stones at Altamont as well things obviously did you get the sense that 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 it was all getting pretty grubby and slightly nasty as well as as kind of the decade was finishing up?
1: Well, even you know, even in Janice's letters and things like that, um, she still had this incredible enthusiasm and excitement about performing. She loved performing. She loved connecting with her audiences. And in fact, um, she played Europe and did the Royal Albert Hall, which she sold out. And one of her greatest achievements, I think, in her mind was getting the traditionally a little bit more um, staid audiences who usually sat politely in their seats at the Royal Albert Hall. She got them up out of their seats, up dancing in the aisles, some of them storming the stage. And she was thrilled about that. But um, when she was performing in 1970, by this time, you know, the so-called counterculture had been, you know, as we say, co-opted, perhaps, thanks to media, et cetera. So she was looking out to her audiences and seeing maybe like teeny, she would even refer to them as teeny boppers, you know, kids who were just there to see this latest, you know, person who was on the cover of Newsweek or, you know, because she'd become such a big media star. So she, you know, that kind of... Um, Bummed her out. She, you know, didn't feel like she could connect with them. But actually, as a matter of fact, I think she still was connecting with them. I've interviewed so many people that saw her, even up to her very last ever concert in August of 1970. She played an afternoon show at Harvard University, in an outdoor stadium with her final band, Full Tilt Boogie. And people who were there still remember that concert, you know, almost 50 years ago as if it was last week, she was so powerful. She connected with them so incredibly. And then she would hang out and mingle with the fans who stuck around afterwards and pass around a bottle of wine and stuff, you know? So, so I think she was still able to connect, um, you know, not as much as she had when she played the, you know, the, the carousel and the, Avalon and the Fillmore you know these kind of ballroom scenarios where the audience and the band were almost one together.
0: Yes and a a few years ago I remember there was a DVD that came out God, it's probably more than a few years now, isn't it? The, the expre- uh, Festival Express. The, the- oh, I love that, yeah. <laughs> it was such a brilliant film. And that was about sort of like, you know, this amazing train journey that was going across Canada and parts of North America with people like, obviously, Janice Joplin, but also The Grateful Dead, the band, Buddy Guy, et cetera. And that, again, you know, she's looking really on it. And you're thinking, my God, she's actually, there isn't, you know, she's not going to last another year, which is incredibly depressing at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She knew that she was really blowing out her voice and partying too hard. And by this period, she had stopped doing heroin. She got off. She, you know, tried to get off several times and kept relapsing. But um, by the late spring of 1970, prior to Festival Express, she had gotten off heroin. However, the drinking um, had probably increased, I would say. She'd been drinking since she was a teenager. I mean, I think... That drug was much worse on her voice than heroin was. Um, I mean, physically, alcohol can really tear up your vocal cords, et cetera. And um, so, yeah, she's pretty three sheets to the wind. And some of the great uh, footage of her, you know, hanging out playing folk songs in the train car with Jerry Garcia and Rick Danko. But again, she looks very happy. I mean, she was bonding with, you know, Jerry who she'd met back in 1963. You know, I mean, there's this one part, every time I see it, it just, oh my gosh, my eyes well up. Jerry just, she's, you know, calling out this old, you know, folk song that they used to do, you know, in 63, Alberta, Let Your Hair Hang Down. And Jerry just looks at her and they're locking eyes and he's like, Janice, I loved you since the moment I first saw you, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, these guys have been through so much together. And, you know, then we lost her just a few months after that.
0: Yes. And actually, you know, having to write that last bit, it must have been incredibly hard, you know, to sort of get the tone and to sort of to do justice to it. So did you was that quite difficult writing about those those last kind of months and that particular day?
1: It, it was hard. And I, I have to say that I tried to approach this book, though. I, I feel like <clears throat> I wanted to approach the book telling the story of her life and her journey as a musician. And sadly, we do know the end of the story, but I don't think we had enough um, information about her Work that she did as a musician, how how much living she did, and all the effort she put into becoming the singer that she was. And of course, part of this was, you know, Janice's own creation of this, you know, oh, I just kind of appeared fully formed. and, you know, I never tried to make it. It just happened. You know, she would put out this kind of image of herself as this just kind of spontaneous blues mama that just kind of could do this, you know, and and that's not at all the real story. And so I wanted my book to focus on her journey. I wanted to try to track her life, discovering this music, becoming the singer that she was. So yes, sadly, you know, the journey comes to an end much too soon. but I didn't want the book to read as this kind of downward spiral trajectory, which I feel like, has been, you know, done before. And I didn't feel like that really gave Janice the credit she deserved for how hard she worked and all the effort she put into it. And also, you know, she made her bed. She was not a victim. She took chances, she took risks, she knew it was dangerous and she knew that it it could lead to an early death. But she made those choices because again, For her, it was part of her art. She felt like, you know, I mean, that whole Kerouac idea of being beaten down of what the beats are and having to, you know, live that way to really get to your deep emotions and things like that. You know, that was part of her art. And horribly for us, she was mainly just drinking when she was recording her last album, Pearl, ran into her old dealer who she had not seen in months in Los Angeles, was trying to cut back on the alcohol because of the problems it causes for a singer with the voice and thought, okay, if I do a little bit of heroin, you know, I can cut back on the drinking, not mess up my voice. So horribly, she got this really, really strong, potent heroin, it was called China White, which just had been brought into the country um, by this guy from Europe. and. You know, kind of like what's happening with the fentanyl and the overdoses today. She just did a little bit of it, but it was so powerful and strong and she was by herself and it killed her.
0: God, that is horrendous. Well, yes, there you go. And only 16 days earlier, Jimi Hendrix had died. I mean, it was just a weird time. But not to end on such a tone, the influence that people like Janice and obviously Grace Slick had, for the you know for the next well next 50 years has been immense hasn't it i mean every you know singer every you know female singer that that's happened has been influenced by janice Joplin so i mean her legacy it's great to have a book like this because actually like you said you want to tell the whole story and not just the sort of like the slightly you know the grim side i suppose or make it sound like she's a victim so it is you know it's great to sort of hear so much else and also to have such kind of amazing material from your archives as well so yeah, so the, the influence that she had is is immense, actually, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's incredible, and I love seeing, I teach at a university, and I love seeing my students' reaction when I play them, you know, Janice doing Ball and Chain at Monterey or um, doing Tell Mama, the Etta James song at Festival Express or on the Dick Cavett show, you know. There's so much great footage of her performing that now that they can experience the you know, magnificence that is Janis Joplin, that you get it from the records for sure, but when you see her on stage and how much she put into her singing and how transformative that was, that it reaches to, you know, this the latest generation. I mean, this is probably the third or fourth generation of, of music fans that can discover her anew, and it's very powerful experience for them. And I, I, I don't think her music has gotten old. It's not at all stale. It still sounds very fresh, very powerful. And what was great for me working on this book was going back and really listening to a lot of her music that I hadn't even really listened to that carefully before. When her first solo album came out 50 years ago, you know, as I mentioned, she was being um, highly criticized by a lot of critics because she left Big Brother And this is a great album that never got its due. It's called I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama. And it's just a fantastic record. It shows the diversity of her vocal abilities that she has, sings all kinds of different songs on the record. Um, And her song, Cosmic Blues, that she wrote, which basically kind of expresses this melancholy, uh, kind of fatalistic uh, thoughts that she had about life, you can hear those lyrics and kind of know what she was dealing with. You know, she did have a hellhound on her, on her trail, you know, and you can hear that and you can hear the lyrics
0: yes and for me I you know, I know it's, it doesn't sound very good saying this but um, it, was the, it was the greatest hits with her on the front the, the cover with the motorbike and listening to it was summertime I have to say that was the song that really captivated me and I thought, oh
1: yeah that's an incredible version that it's,
0: it, it's a sort of romantic melancholic kind of moment isn't it and I, I suppose they're my favourite emotions I have to admit so yes there was something quite like wow and then down on me and yeah, ball and chain is just extraordinary so yes that was my introduction when I was very Young.
1: Well, you should definitely go back and listen to I Got the Cosmic Blues, because she even does, um, I mean, if you like the Melancholic, her version of Little Girl Blue, which she also does live, um, you can see her do that song, I believe it was on um, the Tom Jones show that you can see on YouTube. It's amazing. And that's an American, great American songbook. I think it was Rogers and Hart or, you know, uh, you know, that she just powerfully conveys. She even does a song that she loved as a teenager. She did like the girl groups back in the 50s. So she does the Chantel song, Maybe, does a great version of that. And even speaking of summertime, you know, she first learned that song growing up at home In Port Arthur, Texas, her mother used to buy uh, soundtracks uh, for, you know, musical theater sound, Broadway show tunes and stuff. So they had the Porgy and Bess soundtrack record. So she first learned summertime as a kid in Texas.
0: Excellent. Well, look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for this. It's been fantastic to speak to you. And um, yes, I'll tell you when I put the interview out and and feature, so that will be good, and you can use it on your social media sites. But um, yeah, but I would like,
1: love to I could publish it. I could put a link on my Facebook, oh, and the- I would love to listen to the edited version and. Thank you, David, so much for having me on your show. I love to talk about Janice Joplin, as you can tell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. So um, I hope it really goes fantastically. Hopefully people have bought it for Christmas. That's the main thing.
1: Are, are you based in London, David? Or yes, we are. You? We're, we're, okay. Because so, I was just gonna say I'll email you. I, you know, this guy's been kind of bad. I know you guys have a lot going on over there right now, horribly like we do here, <laughs> politically speaking. But um, I've been invited, and I, you know, haven't signed on the dotted line yet, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed this happening. I've been invited to be part of a literary festival in London from June 1st to the 7th. That's taking place at different venues all over, including that famous jazz club and so how I'm blanking on the name right now. That uh, uh, some, Ronnie Scott's. Ronnie,
0: yeah, excellent
1: and and give different talks and presentations as part of this festival. So, I'm really hoping it's going to happen, and I will keep you posted about that.
0: Oh wow, that'll be fantastic. That sounds yeah. like my sort of weekend. Anyway. Yeah.
1: I'll forward you the information about it. Maybe you even know the guy that's putting it on and everything. I don't, you know, I don't know.
0: No, that'd be interesting. I always love knowing these things. This is good. Well, look, Holly, thank you ever so much. And have...
1: Thank you for your interest. I really appreciate it.
0: No problem. Take care. And um, yes, I'll keep in touch. But um, all all the best. Take care. Have a lovely... Happy holidays. Happy holidays.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.